So, Miles, I know we're an X-Men podcast, but can I just take a minute to talk about how amazingly, brilliantly good Into the Spider-Verse is? Uh, sure, Jay, but no spoilers. I haven't seen it yet. Actually, just to be safe, assume I only know of one Spider-Man, the Spider-Man of Earth-616. Okay. Which one? What do you mean, which one? Which Spider-Man? The one from Earth-616. No, I got that part. Which one? Peter Parker? Right. But which one? How many are there? Off the top of my head? At least four. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 228 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to, if you're into that sort of thing, uh, shortly before Christmas. We're recording this uh, on December 11th, but it'll be coming out uh, right before that. So if you like Christmas, I hope you have a great one. If Christmas isn't your thing, I hope you have a great whatever else it is that you're doing. We hope you have a good late December. Mm -hmm. But regardless, so Jay, you've read the Merry X-Men Holiday Special, right? Oh yes. Oh yes. It's so good. If you have any sort of seasonal feels in any sort of direction, or if you just like X-Men and fun, you should pick it up. It's basically a bunch of little one-page stories. I mean, okay, one of them like is multiple pages across the issue uh, separated, but it's just little looks, uh, some serious, some silly, at what the various X-Men are up to around the holiday season, and it is delightful. I definitely have a few favorites, but there are so many good moments that it's really ultimately pretty hard to pick. Yeah, it's a delightful issue. Highly recommend for just sort of a silly, fun holiday thing. I also appreciate that there's at least a one-page story in there about hating Christmas. Yeah, that's with uh, Nature Girl, right? It is indeed. Yeah, so good. Um, so speaking also of the order of things... So we're going to be talking about some issues today that refer to issues we haven't covered yet. Normally, we try really hard to cover stuff basically in order so that we have context for everything we discuss. However, sometimes Marvel of the past thwarts those attempts and issues get released and numbered in orders that basically make it impossible to do what we try to do. That usually happens around big crossover events. And as you may have noticed, we are running up toward Fatal Attractions. And Fatal Attractions is a weird one, order-wise. Now, reading it as it came out, it was kind of cool, because each chapter of Fatal Attractions, there were six, came out in a different comic, and you'd get chapter one in one month, chapter two in the next, chapter three in the next, and so every month you had a new chapter of Fatal Attractions in one of the different X-books. But since we want to cover it as one big thing, we're getting way ahead of ourselves with some books, we're getting kind of behind on others, we're going to do our best to make it make sense, but if it doesn't fully, uh, you can blame Marvel from the 1990s. Well, and remember, this is Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, not Jay and Miles sequentially recap the X-Men, although we'll admit there are some overlaps. So, trust us, we're experts. Yes, indeed. We are because we said so, and at least some people seem to agree. So what do we have today, Jay? Well, today we've got, we've got three issues we're going to be looking at. Two of them are Uncanny X-Men issues. The third is X-Force. These, these are all sort of uh, not quite one-shots. It's a, a two-part story in Uncanny X-Men, and what's technically the, the resolution and follow-up to another one and, and, and lead into some other stuff in X-Force, but they're all kind of narratively isolated. 
Yeah, so what do you say? Should we start with Uncanny X-Men or X-Force? Probably Uncanny X-Men, just because that stuff is a little more grounded in the book's past. And X-Force, I think, has more that's going to lead into where they're going. Yeah, although these Uncanny X-Men issues, they're going to be leading up into the next one, and well, everybody remembers Uncanny X-Men number 303, and if you don't, boy howdy, in a few weeks when we cover it, you will. Alright, so as far as this Uncanny X-Men story, we've got some context, so let's hear what was happening previously on X-Men. The X-Men remain split ostensibly into two squads, Blue Team and Gold Team. This book for now will be focused on the Gold Team. Who have we got on the roster, Miles? We have, still, Storm, Jean Grey, Colossus, Iceman, Archangel, and Bishop. The X-teams have been pestered for a while by a group called the Upstarts. These are the murderous rich youth who don't have anything better to do than play a complicated and really deeply arbitrary game run by a holographic game master in which they accrue points for murdering prominent mutants. Now, one of these upstarts, maybe the worst? I'm going to go ahead and say the worst. Really? Because Great and Creed. Okay, well, the worst of them who are mutants, or are from the future, or who have green hair. I guess that's just him. Well, anyway, point being, one of the upstarts is Trevor Fitzroy. Trevor is an energy-draining, time-portal-opening mutant from the same alternate future as Bishop. And Fitzroy and Bishop hate each other, like, a lot. But... You know, that's politics. Let's get into the soap opera, which is what we're all really here for. Former romantic partners Storm and the be-ponytailed tech whiz Forge broke up a while ago because, like most X-Men, they are bad at healthy communication, and also Forge is kind of a jerk. Forge left the X-Men at this point and took Mystique with him. Mystique being, of course, the shape-shifting, mostly villain, who'd been having a really rough psychological time since her partner Destiny died way back in the day on Muriel. And who, because it was still under the the Comics Code Authority, was being forced to cope with Destiny's death while still in the closet. So let's just uh, take a moment to remind ourselves and everybody else that Mystique and Destiny were hella queer, and that was great. Well, but also that what Mystique goes through after Destiny's death and the fact that it's not something she can publicly mourn and in a lot of ways feasibly couldn't have at that time in her position— I mean, in this case, it's because of the CCA, but it's still a pretty apt and direct allegory for what folks in her comparable position in the real world had to deal with. Yeah, fair point. Although I do appreciate that all of the characters around her just seem to take it as a given that she and Destiny were romantically involved, even if they don't specifically say it. I always kind of liked that. Yeah, I think I, I would have liked it better if there'd been the option of, of actual explicit acknowledgement and not really room for plausible deniability, but... Oh, absolutely, no question. Anyway, speaking of death and tragedy, let's talk about the Rasputins. So, Colossus's family. Colossus's parents were murdered by some jerks from the Russian government. Colossus's brother got stuck in a different reality for years, and upon returning, murdered a bunch of Morlocks and then killed himself. And now, Colossus's sister Ileana, after being aged up in a hell dimension and then later de-aged to prevent that dimension from destroying the main world, has come down with a mysterious and rapidly progressing virus. So have a few other mutants, and for at least some of them, that virus seems to be the legacy of fallen supervillain Strife, a disease that seems to target mutants and break them down genetically. It hasn't yet been confirmed whether Ilyana has that, but this is X-Men. If something can go terribly wrong, you bet your ass it will. 
Which brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 301. This issue is written by Scott Lobdell with pencils by John Romita Jr., inks by Dan Green, and colors by Steve Bucalato. And it opens with the aforementioned, one of the worst upstarts, Trevor fucking Fitzroy in his Fitzroy fucking fashion. He's got this nice fuchsia tunic that contrasts really well with his bright green hair. It's totally a look. Yeah, Fitzroy's color scheme is part of how you can tell that he's a villain. He wears only secondary um, colors, which, of course, mean, you know, mark him as a villain or at least a morally great character. Well, morally fuchsia and green, but... Morally fuchsia and green. So what he's up to with his fuchsia and green is torturing the living hell out of Selene, the black queen of the Hellfire Club. He's got her in this torture device from the 21st century. So anyone listening to this podcast in 2018 is is well familiar, of course, uh, which is called a spooling device. Basically, it shreds whoever's in it apart and then puts them back together and shreds them apart and puts them back together. And it sounds terrible. And what it results in is Selene with all of her flesh, including her clothing along with it, weirdly, coming off in strips. And Jay, this kind of reminds me of what you were saying about Joe Quesada's art in that last X-Factor story we covered. Yeah, yeah. It's This is definitely the era of, of sort of inexplicable things cut into strips and ribbons. It's also a remarkably non-gory process. It is, but it's still so visceral. Like, I have a lot of specific 90s comics memories from when I was a kid, and this page, the first full-page spread of Celine being torn apart, is definitely one of them. It just, like, creeps me the fuck out. I think that it failed to have the impact on me that perhaps it, it, it was supposed to or that it that it did on, on you at a formative stage just because of, again, that, that lack of gore. It looks, what it looks like to me is so similar to the way that people tend to draw um, digital glitches or teleportation effects that I, I don't think it quite has that that visceral embodied quality for me because that's the semi that's the yeah that's that's the semiotics and the language that my brain goes to. That makes sense. But here, one thing that definitely does portray the pain is Celine's super jagged font and these blue-rimmed speech bubbles with lots of white space around the words themselves. The letterer for this issue is Chris Eliopoulos, and uh, nice work, Chris, back in 1993. Yeah, using mood fonts is risky business, and overdone, it can be incredibly distracting. This is a place where it works very, very well. So... Why is Fitzroy torturing Celine in these strange ways, aside from just being a jerk? I mean, ultimately, even his more complex reason comes back to because he's a jerk. Because he's doing it to get the attention of the Game Master, because apparently this is how you dial the guy up. Yeah, uh, so we find out that if you are the point leader in the upstart competition, if you've killed the most mutants or the best mutants or whatever, then you can just call Games Master whenever and have a conversation. But if you're not, you have to get his attention by causing an extreme amount of pain, which is just so villainously arbitrary that I kind of have to love it as a concept. I I, I guess this is Game Master's way of, of just making it really hard to get a hold of him. Maybe. I don't know. So as Fitzroy villain-splains his motivations, Celine villain-splains some of her own motivations as well. She says, what the hell, Fitzroy? I was the one that started this upstart competition. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, what? I mean, she was associated with it before, talking about how the winner was going to be immortal, or maybe she was going to be immortal. But yes, apparently the latest revision to the ever-evolving explanation for the Upstarts game is that she wanted to make the competition happen to create a powerful next generation of mutant kind, sort of like an apocalypse-esque plan, but much more poorly defined. 
So at this point, I'm just going to say that this is straight up Calvin Ball for rich, murderous bastards. That is exactly what it is. Yes, well said. Well, it works, and indeed, the upstarts do all have a big psychic meeting as Games Master pulls them all into his head, and I do love this two-page vertical spread. Like, a lot of the time it feels like two-page vertical spreads where you have to turn the comic 90 degrees to see the whole thing are essentially just filler. But with this, we get the silhouette of Games Master's head, and it is just full of hundreds and hundreds of monochrome people, just their head and their shoulders all looking in different directions, talking to each other or having feelings or whatever— And this is what things are like for Games Master. He's an omnipath. He can hear the minds of everybody in the world constantly, and it's making him very, very unhappy. It kind of reminds me of the isolationist who was just sort of referenced in our X-Factor coverage, you know? Except that the Games Master can hear everybody, not just mutants. That must get very loud. It does, and apparently the only cure is to have a murder game with ever-evolving rules to take your mind off the whole thing. Alternately, more cowbell. That would also definitely help, I think. We do indeed have all of the upstarts here, just seemingly pulled in from whatever it is they were most recently up to. There's Fitzroy, there's Fabian Cortez being a mopey jerk, Graydon Creed, who is working out, Sienna Blaze. Now, you may notice that one of these things is not like the others. Sienna Blaze is new to the group. She was supposed to have made her first appearance by now. That was would have been in X-Men Unlimited number one, but its release was delayed until after this issue, so this was actually her first on-page appearance. That said, X-Men Unlimited number one, I'm very excited to cover. It's actually, it's actually one of my favorite little one-shot X-Men stories. Oh, I guess she had technically been in, in Strife's Spurn book. She was in that too. But we also have my personal favorite upstart, Shinobi Shaw, who's in his underwear with like a towel falling off of him, holding a rose in his teeth and a bottle of champagne and two champagne flutes. And I love that like at a random moment when he was interrupted psychically, of course, this is what he was doing. He just walks around like that literally all the time. I think he does. I think he was actually very pleased that everybody got to see him like that. He's like, yeah, okay, now they know. Now they know how good at sex Shinobi Shaw is. Because he was doing sex. <laughs> Sorry, it just never stops being funny. He's so great. I mean, he's terrible. He's a murderous asshole, but he's so great. So why why has Fitzroy called this this emergency meeting of of the rich jerks? Apparently, the purpose for this incredibly elaborate procedure to have this incredibly superpoweredly elaborate meeting is just to find out who the next upstart target is. Like, you'd think you could just, I don't know, check your fucking email. I guess in the X-Men universe, people are very bad at communicating using normal methods. They are. I mean, Fitzroy torturing Celine is the closest we've really seen most characters come to picking up the phone and making a call to resolve a question. Which is a little horrifying when I actually stop to think about it. Also, I didn't think the upstarts necessarily had to have targets assigned. I mean, they had they had just been killing around. Well, apparently they do now, or at least this target is worth the most points or something. But the target is, in fact, Forge. According to Games Master, who apparently knows these things, Forge's actions in the next 24 hours will heavily impact the future, so he wants the upstarts to go kill him. And since Fitzroy was the one who called this meeting, he gets first dibs on trying to do so. Interesting. Because Forge is a character who we've seen often as a major player in sort of his own stories. Like, there are there are X-Men stories that are centered around Forge, but they, they're almost always based in, in pieces of plot that Forge brings with him. And this is one of the first times we've seen a major X-Men villain specifically go after or start something up with Forge. 
Yeah, and we'll find out why, and I think it's actually a kind of cool way of looking at things, even if the plotline gets dropped very quickly after this story. I mean, it's it's the upstarts. They have to get back to the base and sing the I'm Very Sorry song. Well, let's check in with some characters who we like a lot more than the upstarts. Let's go back to the X-Mansion. Now, at the X-Mansion, unfortunately, no one is wandering around with roses and champagne. Colossus is, in fact, doing what he's been trying to do for the last while, which is look after his little sister as she is slowly dying. He doesn't know that she's slowly dying, but she definitely is. And right now she's in some big techno bed thing to be better taken care of because sheer technology, but he's just seated near her and talking to her so tenderly. When I first learned of my mutant power, to turn my body to living steel, I remember being scared. I remember wondering, why me? What have I done so wrong that I deserve this additional hardship? As if life were not difficult enough, helping to support our family on the harsh terrain of the Ustardansky Collective. Joining the X-Men helped. But it wasn't until I learned you were a mutant as well that I realized I had nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to be afraid of. Though you might never have known this, because I may never have said it out loud, you have always been there for me, Liana. And I will always be there for you. One of the interesting things about this scene to me is that something Colossus very rarely acknowledges is that there was a period of time where they were much closer to the same age, where they were functionally a lot closer to peers. Yeah, yeah, when Liana was aged up into a teenager, with Colossus being the youngest of the sort of all-new, all-different team, they were really only a few years apart at most. Mm -hmm. And I, I miss that. I miss a lot of things about that era of Liana, but, you know, it was ended in such a beautiful fashion in Inferno that I, I enjoy missing it. If I didn't miss it, the ending wouldn't have been as effective back in Inferno. I mean, it would have been nice if she'd gotten to stay out on the Ustordinsky Collective, getting to run and play with all of the other small Siberian children and not had everything go terribly, terribly wrong. But, you know, X-Men. There's that. But Ilyana asks if she can still hug Colossus, even though he's currently stuck in his metal form due to an X-Men annual that also came out after this that we'll get to. And he says, of course, and they hug, and it's so heartwarming, and oh god, everything is going to go so terribly wrong, Jay. Things are already going pretty terribly wrong, and the first thing that's going terribly wrong is Charles Xavier's ethics, as they are wont to do, because Charles Xavier has decided that he's not going to tell Colossus that Ilyana is apparently dying, and he and he and Moira McTaggart, who is there to consult, are arguing about this, and Xavier just absolutely refuses. He thinks it's the legacy virus, but he wants to make absolutely certain, so they're going to call in an expert. And this is also where we find out, and this is, this is another of those issues came out in the wrong order things, that Mastermind had at this point already died of the legacy virus, or will have died in, of the legacy virus once Uncanny X-Men Annual number 17 is out. So they're going to go talk to Forge, because the X-Men are largely using Shi'ar medical technology, which they mostly understand, but not fully. But Forge's whole mutant power is to deal with stuff like this. You'd think they'd have the Shi'ar on speed dial for that. Like, there's got to be some kind of Shi'ar tech support line. <laughs> oh, man. As someone who has spent a lot of his life doing tech support, it's hard enough when you're talking to, like, somebody who's much older or younger than you. Talking to somebody in a completely different freaking solar system, I feel like that would have even more complication. 
No, no, they outsource it anyway, so pretty much everyone who calls Shi'ar tech support is talking to someone in a different solar system, um, especially on the night shift, and they, they, have, they have fairly detailed scripts that they work from. They can escalate at certain points, and it's, it's actually pretty comprehensive. But, you know, it never fully works out. I can just see Xavier. No, I, I'd like to talk to a manager, please. Yes, y- yes, I know. But could I please just talk to a manager? Is your manager around? No, I already tried restarting. You've asked me that three times. And then it goes to the voice menu, which never quite work. And Xavier's also got the sort of ambiguous accent periodically, and he doesn't have a Shi'ar accent of any recognizable sort. So it just continually roots him back. I can see why he just gets frustrated and retreats to that porn room with all those monitors on the regular. Well, Anyway, let's talk about Forge, because Forge is back in the Airy, which is the really impressive giant penthousey thing that we first saw in Life Death. You know what I appreciate about Forge? Uh, is it his tiny shorts that he's wearing back in the Airy once again? Yeah, but it's specifically the consistency with which he returns to those tiny shorts. They were not a one-off fluke. They are a distinctive signature Forge style. They're his house shorts. Like, I have my house slippers. You know, you just, it's what you do. You feel more comfortable. You feel more at home. Well, he's currently not fully comfortable because he's pondering whether maybe he did the wrong thing when he didn't tell Nightcrawler back in Uncanny Number 300 that he'd freaking found Asteroid M and Magneto's armor was there, it was cracked open, and maybe Magneto was still alive. I, I can answer that question, Forge. You did the wrong thing. Yeah, and apparently the reason he did it, and he does beat himself up over this, justifiably so, good, is that he didn't want to have to deal with talking to Storm when they'd parted so terribly last time. So, once again, feelings get in the way of good things. Okay, look, I feel like this is moral high ground we can really firmly take. We know you have issues, Forge, but when you work with your ex in a professional capacity, sometimes you have to deal with that, and sometimes (laughs) you have to be able to compartmentalize between those worlds. Seriously, we are way better exes than Storm and Forge. What the hell, Storm and Forge? We're better exes than Forge and anybody because Forge is a petty jerk. He surely is. He's at least trying to do nice things, though, because like we mentioned before, he's here with Mystique. She's in a bad way, and he's doing his best to help her sort of psychologically recover from Destiny's death. Except that what he's actually doing is repeating a pattern that he established with Storm, where he takes a woman who has been harmed or damaged back home and attempts to fix her, and in the process hooks up with her. I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I really want to like Forge more than the text allows me to like Forge. Like, god damn it, dude. Well, anyway, just as they're working out, because Mystique has successfully stayed in one form for three days, and her reward is that they get to work out together, there is some work outists interrupt us because Trevor fucking Fitzroy shows up, but I gotta say he looks really cool, like John Romita Jr. makes that stupid crystal armor he wears look pretty awesome. No, he doesn't. There is that 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 armor I I he does a better job than other artists we've seen draw the crystal armor, but Miles, it's just really stupid-looking armor. It's, it's, there's only so far he can take it. I think it looks cool because I think it looks like a kind of action figure that I would have really enjoyed playing with when I was a kid. And I, since I read this comic when I was 11, I was exactly the right age to enjoy action figure-looking character designs. I guess you had been primed on Masters of the Universe. Yeah, except uh, in this case, Trevor Fitzroy isn't wearing any furry jockey shorts over his crystal armor, so he wouldn't fit into Masters of the Universe. Oh man, I've been watching OG Shira. Have you seen much of it? Uh, not really. No, not since I was tiny. 
Okay, first of all, it's actually kind of amazing. And it actually does a really, really good job with gender and stuff. And um, especially when it crosses over with He-Man. And I'm really solidly impressed. But like, nobody on Etheria has pants. The Horde has pants. Only villains have pants. I mean, that was the case in Legend, right? No, in Legend, other people had pants. That was part of the issue, was that pants were available and accessible, and Tom Cruise chose not to avail himself of them. Eh, him and Jill Valentine in Resident Evil 3, I tells ya. Right! It's inexcusable. Well, since this is the early 90s and two male characters are meeting up, it's time for some macho posturing, as Fitzroy says to Forge. Nice gun. But before you fire it, there's something you should know. This body armor I'm wearing is constructed out of Omnium Mesh. It is impregnable. It was created over 100 years in the future. Fair enough. Before I fire it, there's something you should know. This Geothermal 960 I'm holding is constructed out of a Vibranium Polymer. It hurts like all get out. It was created by me. This morning, over breakfast. In tiny shorts. Always in tiny shorts. That's just sort of a given. They're his, they're his thinking shorts. <laughs> they are his thinking shorts, and maybe that would be a good episode title. Anyway, there's a big fight during which Forge's cyber parts get all severed and blown up and stuff. This is always a convenient way to have major injuries on page, but have it be less icky. It kind of reminds me of, like, in the Ninja Turtles cartoon, the fact that the Foot Clan stopped being ninjas and started being ninja robots. In this case, there's also a narrative reason for it, which is to showcase exactly how Fitzroy's powers work. Fitzroy drains life energy, and Forge basically is leading with his, his cybernetic limbs, so Fitzroy can't get a hold of his, his biological body. Well done, Forge. You're still an asshole, but you're a smart asshole. Now, Mystique shows up to help. She's disguised as Bishop, which, of course, pisses Fitzroy off. This is a good opportunity for Fitzroy to whine about his parents and how much everything in his life sucks. And we also hear a name for the first time. We hear the name of the person that killed Fitzroy's mom, that being Bishop's sister, Shard. Shard is so cool. She is, but I'd like to point out her full name is Shard Bishop, which is the most made-up sounding name I've ever heard, and that makes me love it even more. No, that's actually a fucking awesome name. I am I am all about that name. Oh yeah, I have no complaints. It just doesn't sound like a name real people would have, except maybe in the dark, mullety future that Bishop hails from. What I think is really remarkable about this is that the parents' bishop named one of their children Lucas and their other child Shard. Yeah, seriously, that's like, I don't know, Octavian and Joe or something. No, it's like Octavian and Glass. Yeah, I guess Shard's kind of a weird-sounding name, period, in a lot of senses. Well, it's not so much a weird-sounding name as an entirely different category of name. Hmm. It's like comparing apples and strange smells. Anyway, so just as the cavalry's about to arrive, because Xavier has sent Storm and Bishop, the actual Bishop, to go fetch Forge, there's a giant explosion, and Forge's airy blows up in an enormous explosion that rains wreckage everywhere. Hooray, the issue's over. But the story isn't. It continues straight into Uncanny X-Men number 302. That is written once again by Scott Lobdell, penciled once again by John Romita Jr., inked by Dan Green and Dan Panosian, and colored by Steve Bucolato. And everything is freaking chaos on the streets below the airy. This is uh, Dallas, Texas, by the way. That's where Forge's Tower is. But Storm is there being a god damn badass, and John Romita Jr. is showing off his artistic chops, I think, better than he has in this era. Storm 
is doing her best to protect the civilians from the falling debris. But she's not a telekinetic, which means that her only real option for this is to generate hurricane force winds. Exactly. So it's rough, but it does make for a damn cool, once again, 90 degree flipped two page spread as Ramita just shows the strain in her face, her hair's all wild in the wind, her fingers are like clawed because of the exertion, her jaws clenched, this light is like coming at her white costume from all different angles and making dramatic shadows. It's it's one of my favorite storm images ever, honestly. Unfortunately, Dallas's human population is less impressed, which is kind of understandable. They saw an explosion, and then they saw this woman basically come out of the explosion into the sky, and she's clearly again generating hurricane force winds which while they're protecting the population from the flying debris debris from below just look like they're throwing the debris everywhere and are still doing a fair amount of damage themselves and so when storm finally lets a piece of debris through accidentally and gets knocked onto the ground by it all of the humans come up to try to beat the fallen woman to death because goddammit, it racist jerks they are prevented from doing that briefly by a cop who is fairly rad, except for the fact that he he compares anti-cop sentiments to anti-mutant sentiments, which is a kind of dubious metaphor. God damn it. But even he is only limitedly successful because the crowd realizes that, yeah, they've got him massively outnumbered, and they're about to rush them again when a giant ice hand breaks through and and catches the the main uh, malefactor. D- don't kill me, P- please. To which Iceman replies, Kill you? For being a barely brain-celled, morally challenged, ethnically intolerant, poorly dressed, backwards thinker? You people don't get a lot of superheroes down this way, do you? Um, Captain America, once, about three years ago. Apparently you don't get a lot of rhetorical questions either. Now, as the gold team is arriving, Bishop, who's already here, he's heading into the building from his hovering Blackbird, thinking about, wait a minute, if Forge dies, if Genesis, which is the name Bishop has used in the past for Forge, dies, then Genesis won't found the XSE, which means I'll never be part of the XSE, which means I won't be coming back in time, which means I won't be able to save him from this disaster. Paradoxes are confusing and time travel is terrible. But doesn't that also mean Fitzroy probably wouldn't have come back in time? It does, and the fact is, timelines branch in the Marvel Universe anyway rather than getting rewritten, so it would be different regardless. But I do appreciate Bishop just being his usual, I just want to have things be simple, self. Haha, <laughs> you chose the wrong comic series for that, buddy. Right? Well, he makes his way in and finds an indestructible dome inside the Ares wreckage. Apparently, this indestructible dome was part of Forge's set of defenses, and it instantly covered Forge and Mystique off-panel during the cliffhanger page last issue. That is narratively handy. Good job planning for that weirdly specific contingency, Forge. Once again, you're an asshole, but you're a smart asshole. And Forge busts out, and he and Bishop confront each other before they realize who's who. I mean, not that they're big fans of each other anyway. But I really enjoy something that Ramita does here. Forge has had his cybernetic leg severed by this point, and so he's just balancing on his one flesh leg, and Ramita draws Forge's hips and shoulders tilted as they should be with him standing on one leg as he tries to keep his balance asymmetrically. It's just a really nice touch. This this is 90s art that I really enjoy. Like, yes, everybody is made of far too many muscles, but the anatomy is actually pretty solid when it comes to Ramita's stuff. Now, Bishop and Forge don't have much time to confront each other because Fitzroy, who has been briefly buried in the explosion, is in fact A-OK, and he is there to attack 
everybody, um, Bishop Forge and Mystique, who by this point has been seriously injured, although I'm not sure whether it was in the explosion or by Fitzroy beforehand. I think it was Fitzroy while Mystique was disguised as Bishop. And in fact, Fitzroy's about to kill everybody when the rest of the X-Men gold team finally shows up with a charging Colossus in the lead. A charging Colossus who is not very happy about the world and people making it an even worse place than it already is. Why is it so difficult for you, for others like you, to understand that the rest of us were not placed upon this earth for your amusement? Since the day I joined the X-Men, I've been subjected to one would-be mutant warlord after another. Everyone from Krakoa, to Proteus, to Mr. Sinister, even Professor Xavier in his fashion, has sought to dictate how the rest of mutant kind should live. I, and many like me, refuse to tolerate your petty aggressions anymore! From this day onward, I swear on the graves of my parents that we will be free to live our own lives! Today, now, and forever! Yeah, I, I post a lot of panels on Tumblr um, tagged Queer Rage Cyclops, but this is some serious Queer Rage Colossus happening. Emphasis on the rage part. Colossus is beating the living hell out of Trevor Fitzroy. Colossus was always the gentlest X-Man. That was the paradox. He was this big armored warrior, but he had the soul of a poet, as Xavier always put it, the soul of an artist. And all of that has just been burned away by the tragedy in Piotr's life. And now all that's left is just frustration and sadness that manifests as rage. Can we go back to his list of examples? Because I find it so interesting and so telling that he mentioned Proteus on that. Proteus, the person he was forced to kill. That was the first person that Colossus ever killed. And he even mentions Krakoa, who wasn't exactly trying to manipulate the world full of mutants other than just eating the ones that were nearby. No, but it was Colossus's first mission. It was Krakoa makes sense to mention just because he bookends Colossus's time on the team. Yeah, exactly what I was going to say. Like, Krakoa is the reason that Colossus got pulled into this life that he's increasingly come to resent and hate. The... X-Men have to restrain Colossus from killing Fitzroy, and Colossus is furious. He says that Bishop should get this. Bishop ran around killing mutant criminals left and right when he first came to this time, but Bishop points out that he was acting lawfully. He was enforcing the rules of his world and of the world those specific criminals had come from. Colossus, on the other hand, is taking the law into his own hands in ways that he's not authorized to do. And Colossus says that maybe someone somewhere along the way changed the rules. I feel so bad for Colossus. Like, every freaking thing that happens to him for a multi-year period is just terrible, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. I think the next time he's happy is going to be in freaking Joss Whedon's run. I was going to say, I think the next time he's happy is, like, briefly before he dies, maybe? I don't think that's happy so much as at peace. Tired? Basically tired. Everyone's very tired if they're an X-Man. So the heroes win. They do successfully uh, defeat Fitzroy. They successfully save Forge. And remember that big prophecy about how Forge's actions in the next 24 hours were going to be such a big deal? Um, I assume that's, that he did something that would eventually lead to him founding the XSE, but that plot line totally freaking gets dropped on the floor. Here's the thing. They never say it's going to be something that affects the mutant community. He could have invented, like, a fancy new toothbrush, for all we know. That does sound like something Forge might do. Um, apparently, Forge was originally going to come back to X-Men, but the character ended up getting co-opted for a future run of X-Factor. Maybe that explains why the plotline was dropped, but 
Anyway, let's go to a plot line that is kind of just now kicking into high gear at the end of this issue. Right. Um, back at the X-Mansion, Ileana is in bad shape, and she's in bad enough shape that someone has gotten in touch with someone who they feel should be there. Jubilee answers the door and finds Kitty Pride. Kitty Pride, who says she came as soon as she heard. And it's awesome to see her finally in an X-Book, even though she did get a chance to meet some of the X-Men recently in Excalibur. But goddamn the circumstances. So... I want to talk about this picture of Kitty because Jubilee reacts with shock and horror to Kitty arriving. And I remember reading this for the first time and I remember assuming that Kitty was supposed to look to maybe be possessed or clearly evil because this version of her looks so, so off. Yeah, Ramita draws a strange Kitty, which is kind of weird because he drew Kitty back in the day. Yeah, this version of Kitty is super grown up and weirdly, like, exaggeratedly sexy, but also just sort of vaguely generally sinister looking in in ways that it's a little hard to nail down. Well, I'm happy to see her, even if she does look a little off model. Yeah, I was was surprised that I still found this page as weird as I had initially, because usually with a lot of stuff like that, I'll go back and be like, oh, haha, yeah, silly 18-year-old Jay. And with this one, I was like, nope, nope, I was right on the money the first time. Well, let's move on to something differently strange, namely X-Force. And let's do a little bit of context for what's happened leading up to this issue. Now, X-Force at this point is composed of younger mutants from a number of different teams. We've got two of the OG New Mutants, Cannonball and Sunspot, as well as two of the X-Factor kids who ended up joining the New Mutants. Those are Boom Boom and Richter. We've also got... We've also got a handful of other characters who joined the team at the very end of the New Mutants run or early in in X-Force, and those are Warpath, Siren, Feral, and Shatterstar. So, Jay, you mentioned a couple of the X-Factor kids uh, joined the New Mutants and then X-Force. Well, two of them that aren't around anymore are Firefist, Rusty Collins, and Skid's Sally Blevins. They ended up getting arrested back during late New Mutants and were then rescued by the terrorist Mutant Liberation Front where they were brainwashed by the MLF's leader, Strife, at which point they then proceeded to get arrested yet again. So that's where they are right now, in custody. Speaking of bad guys, some of the major villains of this era are the human supremacist Friends of Humanity. They are led by secret upstart Graydon Creed, uh, Sabretooth's shitty kid, which is saying something, and um, they have, have finally sort of made themselves known in this era. They are, they are starting to enter the public conversation. There's also Magneto, who died dramatically in Claremont's last issue, but based on some stuff that's happening all across the X-Universe, maybe actually didn't. We'll get to that. No, but we got to that. And we covered that in, in context of, of Forge's you know, moral dilemma over whether he should have mentioned this to, to Nightcrawler when he discovered it in X-Men 300. Yes, Forge. But it's going to come into play in this in, in X-Force very shortly as well. So let's jump into X-Force number 24, Prisoners of Fate. This is written by Fabian Nesaza, penciled by Greg Capullo, inked by Richard Bennett, and colored by Marie Javins. You know, I mentioned this with Nesaza's first issue, and they're still there, and I keep waiting for his his perpetual timestamps to matter, and they never do. They're kind of cool, though. I've kind of come to just associate them with X-Force. 
We should also mention what X-Force has been up to immediately preceding this, because this comes right in the tail of the last issue when they went and rescued three of their members, uh, Boom Boom, Siren, and Warpath from the externals, a group of kind of jerk immortal mutants who think that Cannonball is one of them, and he nominally is at this point. Whether or not that's going to stay the case is actually still nebulous, even now in, in 2018. So the big bads this issue are going to be Friends of Humanity. Well, they're more like many little bads. They're 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 numerous and obnoxious and really undifferentiated as characters at this point, and they st- they they manage to stop and overpower the prisoner transport that is carrying Rusty and Skids specifically. And this is a big secret that Friends of Humanity doesn't know. Uh, the transport is taking Rusty and Skids back to the Xavier Mansion, presumably to be unbrainwashed. But unfortunately, it it gets um gets taken over on the road by a lot of guys wearing matching uniforms who, because of how they were drawn and how similar they looked and the shapes of their costumes, I initially thought might be Madrox dupes. I mean, they still might be. Madrox dupes can get pretty weird. Have you been reading the new Uncanny X-Men? Because, wow. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on there. And a lot of Madroxes. But these presumably aren't. They've just got similar taste in headgear and, and costume lines. X-Force, meanwhile, is just getting back from rescuing Boom Boom, Siren, and Warpath from a group of externals who had kidnapped them. The externals, as you may recall, are immortal mutants um, of whom Cannonball is at least nominally a member. They had hoped to figure out a way to use Cannonball to find out the secret to the legacy virus, which is also killing them. But Cannonball had managed to free his teammates without having to sacrifice himself. Good job, Cannonball. However, they've also got one more hostage with them, or did. This was a guy named Cruel, whom they had brought to find the way to the externals um, headquarters. Cruel rules! But Richter, Shatterstar, and Sunspot, when um, Cannonball wasn't looking, had decided to dump Cruel overboard since his fiberglass body cast floats. And man, um, Capullo is very much from the the Liefeld and Lee school of art. And he still errs in the direction of shouty faces when in doubt, but he's really starting to get a lot more nuance, and he does a really good job of, like, disappointed dad Sam Guthrie. Man, I love it. Like, so, back in X-Factor, Havoc has to deal with mayo jars that nobody can open, Madrox clown cars, Guido just being Guido, and Cannonball has to deal with his teammates dumping prisoners in the ocean here in X-Force. That sounds about right. Man, Sam's life with with six to ten younger siblings has prepared him incredibly well for this job. Yup. Now, unfortunately, you know, even if even if Sam is qualified, there's there is already dissent in the ranks. Um, folks who want to know why he assigned them to different squads, pointing out that Cable did it differently, and I just Cable's not a good role model. No, God, unless you want to learn how to have like way too many pouches and capsules and guns, and you probably shouldn't want to learn how to do that. It's like, damn it, Sam, Cable could carry at least 17 times that many guns while lying to us. Why can't you be more like your Cable? Don't be more like Cable, at least not at this point, at least not if you're Cannonball. Well, anyway, what is Cannonball and X-Force up to now that they've rescued their teammates? Well, they've got to make a quick turn right around and head back because Professor Xavier has called them to rescue Rusty and Skids to Val Cooper's intense consternation, and they are on the job. As Cannonball explains... Friends need rescuing. And Farrell replies, Friends of mine? I kind of doubt that. Sometimes Farrell's fun. 
Yeah, Farrell and Boom Boom start to develop a pretty good rapport in in this this issue. Um, one of the things I love about Nastasia's run on this is is watching the team dynamics develop and and the not only as a team but you know the rapports between individual characters. We've talked about this a lot in context of the New Mutants specifically, and that part of what's so good about them is that they not only have relationships as a team, but any given two of them have a pretty well established dynamic, and we're starting to see that come out of X Force, which I love and which makes the book and the team just feel so much better realized. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah. So X-Force heads into battle. They go to rescue their old friends. And this is this is a delicate mission um, because X-Force is going to need to use a lot of force. But if, if, if they screw up, if they're, they're too violent, if they, they do too much damage, they're ultimately going to be giving Friends of Humanity more, more ammunition for, for their agenda. Yeah, if you've been paying attention to the news, especially uh, in Portland in the last few months, uh, this may be a familiar dilemma. Shatterstar, though, is pretty impressed with the position that the Friends of Humanity have put X-Force into. On my homeworld, such a manipulation of the media is to be commended. What I commend is how X-Force charges, like, really heroically into battle in this, like, framing-worthy splash page, and then on the next page, it's just all of them quietly talking about what their strategy is going to be. It's so X-Force. Now, that's just how they get out of vehicles, Miles. Oh, well, that's a good point. I mean, I don't know how anybody else would. So they, they managed to get Rusty and Skids with minimal trouble, but Rusty and Skids are still very much brainwashed, and the dialogue is kind of hilarious. And what it reminds me of most are the parts in Ghostbusters where people are tr- keep trying to have normal conversations with, with Lewis Tully after he's been possessed by Vince Clortho, the Keymaster. So, so you get, you know, folks being like, yeah, so I guess we should be going, to which Rusty and Skids respond, Strife will return to show you the way it must be! By fire will this world be cleansed. You will see. All of you will see. So I know we were a big fan of when like Richter and Sunspot came back to X-Force because it felt like old new mutants. What about Rusty and Skid suddenly being back in the book? Like, I got to say, I am not feeling that rush of glee that I was feeling when Richter and Sunspot showed up. And I don't think it's just that Rusty and Skids are still brainwashed. First of all, Rusty and Skids have never really had much of a way in the way of relationships and dynamics with characters other than each other. Second, Rusty and Skids make no sense on a superhero team. That's not where they want to be. It's not what they want to be doing. It's not something they have any inherent connection to. And they've, yeah, they've just, they're, they're, they're comparatively underdeveloped too. Like we've seen a lot more of Richter and we've seen him do a lot more outside of his original context than we have with these guys. Yeah, Skids mainly just has good fashion sense, and Rusty, well, he mainly just hangs out with Skids. Speaking of characters who have been absent for a while and then returned, Domino and uh, the the remaining members of the six-pack have made it to the home of Vanessa Carlyle, Car- that's Copycat, who had been pretending to be Domino and traveling around with X-Force for a while, and uh, her housemate, the now late Tina Valentino's. And they've managed to successfully disable Deadpool and Sluggo, who showed up to kill Copycat. Sluggo is lit. Not this Sluggo. This Sluggo is not lit. Valid. Um, Because the six-pack, and specifically Domino, need Copycat to tell them where X-Force is. Now, Domino just wants to freaking kill Copycat after Copycat took her life for many, many months. But Grizzly and Hammer stop her from doing so. 
I really like that Grizzly is generally the cooler head in any situation because he's big and furry and generally menacing. And he's he's delightful. He's definitely my favorite member of Six Pack. Um, so Deadpool and Sluggo both heal fast, which means if these guys are going to get away, they need to buy some time. And Vanessa, copycat solution to this, is just to pull out a laser pistol and shoot Deadpool and Sluggo in the head and chest. The sound effects for, for laser shots at this point are foot which is kind of great and also kind of nonsense. We also get a great line from Grizzly accompanied by an even greater facial expression, which you can check out in the visual companion. You lazed them in cold blood? They'll be fine. But that's what's up in Massachusetts. What's going on in space? There are some captions waiting to tell us. Space. Just beyond the clutching grip of Earth's atmosphere. With a flick of a finger, a pulse wave rides along the electromagnetic field, seeking and then finding its elusive quarry. Slowly, majestically, the shattered remnants of that orbital station once called Greymalkin are pulled out of the inky blackness of space. Then, and only then, does this lonely wanderer smile for he is back, and he has found a place to call home. And if you think that the lonely wanderer in question is probably wearing purple and red, you are correct. That's right, because this, I mean, okay, let's just say it. This is clearly Magneto. He's wearing a spacesuit, and I think the only justification for the opaque visor in this spacesuit is to just to put forth some lip service to maintaining the illusion that we don't know exactly who it is. The thing is... Well, we, we only see his fingertips at first, but, um, which are purple and red. So there's, there's no way we wouldn't know who it is. Like that's literally, it's on the first page. Yeah. Well, there is that. But the other thing about the spacesuit is that when we do see his face, he doesn't seem to have a visor down at all, which raises some questions. Can Magneto breathe in space? I mean, with magnetism, uh, I'm pretty sure we've seen him do it at least once. Sure. Why not? That said, I do like that we see this portion of Magneto's return in X-Force, because of course, all of the X-Books are leading up to Fatal Attractions, which is all about Magneto. And so, seeing Magneto find his new base in Greymalkin, a couple story arcs after Greymalkin was central, that's pretty rad. But that's what we have for this small 1993 grab bag of issues. You, on the other hand, have questions. Brian emailed us to ask... Where do the numbers for alternate timelines and Earths come from? Well, I'd always heard that the universe designations were from the month and year that the universe debuted or became its best-known self. So, for instance, Earth 811, which is Days of Future Past, that came out in 1981 January. 811-811-811. Earth 295, Age of Apocalypse, that flipped it around. It's February 1995. 2-95. Earth 1191, Bishop's Future, that was first mentioned in November 1991. Earth 11326, that was Age of X. They even got the day. That came out in March 26, 2011. Now, as far as the 616, I'd always assumed that was when Fantastic Four number one came out. You know, the first comic that we could definitely say, yes, this was the Marvel Universe as we know it. But that was actually... November 1961. Um, what June 1961 did have was Amazing Adventures number one, the first appearance of Dr. Druid. So if you like pajamas and being bald, I guess there's that for you. Uh, later on, the numbers became arbitrary, like Earth 1610 is the ultimate universe that came out in October 2000. So that nixes that association. 
But I did find out, apparently, what the person who came up with Earth designations, Alan Moore, back in Captain Britain, had to say about it. Yeah, so the the official handbook of the Marvel Universe got a definitive answer for this, and apparently 616 was just a random number with no special significance. Yeah, Alan Moore was saying that people always seem to be talking about Earth 2 or Earth 4, presumably in DC Comics, but never about any higher numbers, so he chose a higher number. There's a rumor about it being related to the whole 666 thing, but I'm pretty sure that's not actually what happened. There are lots of stories. So so canonically, the answer is that denizens of Earth 1218 name universes as they see fit. Uh, 1218, incidentally, is, is the one we live in. Exactly. Pedro Hyracene asks on Tumblr, Did you guys know there's a Marvel Legends action figure wave out that consists of Colossus, Cyclops, Dazzler, Old Man Logan, Polaris, Shatterstar, and freaking Sunfire that together give you the parts to create a really excellent-looking warlock? I did know that, and I have in fact had one of his legs sitting on my action figure shelf for some time now. However, I remain deeply partial to the 1998 Toy Biz Warlock figure, which is the New Mutants one, and it comes with both a disc blaster arm and... Critically, Doug Ramsey's head. That that part always freaks me out, that you take off the warlock mask and there's just, like, Doug's face right there. I mean, I get why, but still. No, well, there, there are two heads, because it's it's not just the warlock figure, it's also the Doug figure. Um, so he, it can be standard warlock, or it can be Douglock, which I think is actually super rad. It's, he's not just carrying around Doug's severed head for no reason. Right, right, but still, Weird. It also does a pretty good job, especially for 1998, of being a fairly Sienkiewicz-y action figure, which which is damn impressive. What's also impressive is that we get to be a fully listener-supported podcast thanks to you. Whoa! And some of those levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from a variety of fictional characters and concepts. Let's take it now to the angry Claremontian narrator. Did you really think you could fill Rebecca Ginsburg's shoes, Anthony Damiani? Yeah, you can lead a team, but how big is your bathtub? How many guns can you strap to your person at one time? Do you even have a satellite base from the future? Yeah, I thought not. And and the mic um, here returns to to a a now regular in this section. That would be uh, Sexy Shinobi Shaw. Why, Games Master, I didn't see you there. I certainly wasn't posing in this towel with this rose and champagne in hopes that someone would happen to psychically peek in. That would be silly. No, I was just slowly, sensually balancing this champagne bottle on Emma Johnson's various parts, which is obviously the hottest part of doing sex. Emma was totally into it. And Tori Vipond and I were lightly, teasingly wrapping each other in towels and then unwrapping them, building intensity with every repetition. You should have seen Tori's face. It was so intense. Because I'm very good at sex and know all of the things there are about sex, which I'm good at. So are Emma and Tori. Sex. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. 
Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we're lighting the candles, spiking the eggnog, and heading to the distant future of Earth 4935. For our giant-sized winter special. 